we all have stress in our life and we're going to have stress in our life. Can't avoid it. We can't predict it. And that would have been close to the time when as a program, I intentionally started changing the language from wellness to well-being to emphasize, uh, you know, this holistic, this organic opportunity for individuals in the workplace to evaluate what does it mean for me? What do I need? We don't all need the same well-being influence. And so having this opportunity to launch mindfulness and meditation was a different spin on that. It was, do you need to create more space in your life? And that could be mental space, physical space, boundary space. You know, you can take whatever intentionality you need behind it to make it your own. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Haley Prophet. Haley is the founder of Haley Prophet Consulting, LLC. She is a certified workplace wellness program manager, a certified mindfulness facilitator, and a certified resilience and thriving facilitator. She offers her services to corporations as a fractional time chief wellness officer bringing a multidimensional approach and authentic presence to her strategies for fostering an atmosphere in which individuals, organizations, and communities thrive. You can learn more about Haley at HaleyProfit.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Haley. Haley, welcome to the Corporate Couch this morning. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jeff. I am so excited to talk to you because this is going to be one of my favorite topics that you're an expert at. We met through an introduction from Mary Mesner and uh, chatted maybe about a month ago for the first time. But, you know, I'm a big believer in health and fitness, and I think it, you know, helps you be a better, uh, not only work professional, but a, a better human being because you're healthy. And as uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson has said, you know, your health is your wealth. So uh, since you're a wellness expert um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to dig into your career and your journey and how you started a, uh, your own consulting company. Yeah, I mean, excited to have the conversation because just as you state, if businesses are truly saying that their employees are their greatest asset, why wouldn't you invest in that asset and their well-being so that they can serve you and you are serving them. So excited to have this discussion, see where it leads. A lot of people start, you know, having this be a part of a passion conversation because we're all working and we're all invested in our communities. So it's definitely interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'll give a special uh, first time ever announced in public. I'm going to start doing some corporate couch uh, special editions on a monthly basis and just ask uh, various C-suite ex executives and experts about different topics. So I'm going to start with company culture, talk about the fractional model in another episode, but I, I want to talk about uh, health and well-being of uh, professionals. So uh, definitely you'll be a guest on on uh, that uh, uh, abbreviated podcast, I'm basically going to ask one question to uh, uh, various people and uh, let them answer it and then put the uh, the aggregate uh, responses. In a I love it. Way. It's it's like putting together a little love seat version then of the couch, just a little sprinkle of expertise from all of these corporate leaders. The oh Haley, you you might <laughs> the love seat edition. Oh wow, that. You, you might have Makes just, it meaningful. 
Ah, I love it. So I always like to start with a fun question. Um, you know, we're so used to Zoom since uh, the COVID pandemic. I believe you were still at Garmin at the time. What's the craziest attire you've ever seen on a professional Zoom call or lack of attire? <laughs> right. It could it could swing either way for sure, based on what every individual has experienced over three years of virtual fatigue. Oh gosh. You know what? I'm spin it and actually say my experience wasn't even around attire. It was the background distraction, right? We got so used to pets and kids and spouses and roommates. And it was the children that I would see running (laughs) in their undies. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just, you can't wrangle everything in your life. And yes. it became the norm of appreciating and accepting. And what are you going to do? We embrace it. That is whole person reality of how we were living for so long. Yeah, hundred percent. I And I do think uh, it helped the pandemic helped people become more empathetic because of what everybody was dealing with. So, you know, uh, that was a good, th- a positive that came out of it, obviously, in my in my mind. Yeah, I think it's a, a great depiction of this transition, you know, using HR and as example of it's not only about human resources in a business or a company. It's this shift intentionally to being human centered. And it really taught us we had to lead and will continue to lead with a human centered approach to how we're working. Yeah, I I totally agree. Uh, Mark Mears, who uh, interview I just published this week, you two should definitely meet, but he says a lot, let's put the human back in human resources. And I just, I love that line. It's sad you have to say it, and uh, and but it is a thing. Um, And we'll dig into more on that, I'm sure, as we we chat. So it's the corporate couch, and we're not going to get into a therapy session, but I think... (laughs) What you did as a child helps define you uh, as an adult. So what what was fun for you growing up? What what was the things you loved to do, Haley? Yeah, I will say one thing that was very consistent through my youth was tennis and finding this love for the sport. Um, I was very much more accustomed to play individual sports and I just, I loved it. I loved that it gave me the freedom. The competitiveness was on my shoulders. My success was on my shoulders and how much that taught me to dig into how can I grow? How can I challenge myself? How can I step outside of my own comfort zone? You know, when I translate that into, we all have a safety zone we like to stay in, but leveraging my love for tennis growing up and competitors that at a young age, not knowing at that time what imposter syndrome was like how I could use that to motivate, use that to challenge myself. And I share tennis because it was something I loved so much and I grew from, but I always describe myself as I am not a super athletic person, but I've always been very active. And for me, it resonated. I didn't need to be the best of the best. I wasn't going to be playing at Wimbledon in my near future But to be active was important to me. And as I think about my journey and going on to college, it didn't really resonate yet. I, in fact, funny story, Jeff, I don't know if many people know this about me, but my freshman year, I thought I was going to major in youth education or youth development. And oh my goodness, that was not part of my journey. It was my second year in school really understanding that for me, it was this style of how we live our lives. But I will say, I share that story because I could connect the dots, recognizing I was so passionate at that time in my life. And I'd worked for years in daycare centers and summer camps and with special needs children. And I loved all of it. But then it became very apparent to me. It was more about this lifestyle of activity, this lifestyle of health this lifestyle of well-being. And that was when I shifted my focus and wanted to dig into that. And I want to make it clear, I also wanted to do it in a holistic fashion. And that wasn't very apparent in 
in workplaces, it wasn't very apparent in a collegiate setting. And so it was pushing myself into this space of what is health promotion? You know, it'd been around workplaces for decades, but how do you really define it and settle into this degree phase and embrace that? And so I frequently describe it as I'm blessed to do the work I do because I am passionate about it, not just personally, but especially as it relates to businesses, workplaces, communities that we live in and are a part of. Yeah, we're definitely going to dig into that. So I want to talk about tennis for a second. I did not play tennis growing up, um, you know, blue collar f uh, family. You know, my dad was a union welder, so that was kind of an elitist <laughs> or a sport. But my son played and, um, you know, he got to a USTA ranking in the Heartland region. It was a five state region at 12 and under, he was like 65. So, but what I love about tennis for kids, and uh, one, it's a lifelong sport. You can continue playing, uh, you know, into your seventies mm -hmm. and eighties. But what I love about tennis is for, uh, for uh, kids is y you have no coach when you're playing you know, you're, it's all, you know, like football, you, you, you have coach, baseball, basketball, you know, you, soccer, there's no coach, like you've got to figure out what's going on yourself. And I just think it's a, it's just a great teaching tool to, to, you know, to be accountable and to figure out your own challenges and how to fix them. I don't know if you have yeah. any thoughts on that. And I take it a next step further. What I hear you saying that resonates with me is it's a mindset game and, and how much playing when you're younger, you may not necessarily connect those dots or not directly, but to your point of there's not the coach on the court with you, it's learning to shift that mindset when you are down in a match or you're feeling that you're not playing your best in that match, how you can cultivate that mindset. And I think that I, I want to call out that correlation is how can we embed this mindset training, these resiliency techniques, all of these practices younger and younger and younger? That wasn't something formally included in any of my training or coaching or playing over the years as a young athlete in that tennis space. But now as an adult, definitely drawing the connection on how much. And we've heard athletes talk about the mindset game in athletics for years. That isn't new but it's highlighting in every individual opportunity for us to be active, how influential that mindset match is in and of itself too. Yeah, absolutely. Just to, to finish up on the childhood part of your journey, did you have any aspirations to be something when you grew up? You know, like, did you say, hey, I want to be this when I'm an adult? Oh gosh, well, don't we all? And the problem is I had too many. I thought I was going to run the world. I thought I was going to live in New York City and be a lawyer. Oh my gosh, I never would have lasted a minute at law school. So yeah, definitely these aspirations to be big and bold and audacious. And I would never say that I didn't feel like I left any of those behind. They just changed and became different versions of that same vision I had, but in a capacity that that resonated with me as Haley, as an individual. It's, it's funny, though, a lot of my guests didn't have any, you know, they didn't, <laughs> which I was surprised as I asked that question, thinking like every, like you said, everybody has some aspirations of I want to be this when I'm an adult, but it's just interesting. And it's neither here nor there. So you go to Emporia State for college, and you briefly touched on it. You started with the youth development, uh, mm -hmm. kind of, I'm going to do something as an adult in that arena. And so what made you actually pivot? Yeah, it was my sophomore year at college. And when I began to realize it wasn't so much the early childhood education, youth development, it became clear at that time that the path was going to be around one, nutrition, dietetics, kind of that direction, or secondarily, more that physiology, uh, kinesiology route. And so I found my niche and love for this space around health promotion. And so my bachelor's degree is in health promotion with an emphasis on workplaces. And to watch that degree space really evolve, it is now 
the productivity and performance management program. And so how you see these terms and this language changing and evolving over time has been amazing. And so for me, it was recognizing I had this passion and growing curiosity around bringing health and movement and lifestyle into the workplace and into a shared responsibility that we have. Uh, Emporia State had this health promotion uh, degree. Was that unique at the time? It was. At that time, it was the only university in the state of Kansas to have something that really blended in an organic fashion, both niche areas of work. So I did a little bit of digging and I found out you were inducted into the HPER Hall of Fame at Emporia State in 2016. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning, Jeff. I am so honored. I am the second health promotion major to be inducted into the Hyper Hall of Fame. And it just, it meant so much. It was, you know, that was quite a few years ago. It was earlier in my career, but recognizing I was so passionate about this work and wanted to continue to give back. And so I have continued since graduating to have a relationship with the ongoing program to go back and inspire majors and answer their questions give them motivation of if you are passionate in this space, don't take no for an answer. Don't feel like you need to change career paths, like dive into that more, challenge things, push yourself, step out of that comfort zone. So when a prior professor um, had reached out and said that she had nominated me, I was completely humbled by the experience, but what an honor and now something that gives me a great platform to talk about and encourage others really go back to it's kind of interesting jeff i'm having this moment of realizing that's the youth development part of my life now right i mean i like to think that i'm not aging but as i go back year after year these students are obviously younger and younger and so how can i be a support system for them in fact i have lots of individuals that will graduate or perhaps do an internship or be looking for some work up here in the kansas city area and we will reconnect just to kind of support other hornets along the way but yeah i love it it was such an honor yeah that is just outstanding and then full disclosure uh, one of my close friends tim hirschberger went to emporia state so one time we went there and I did a my first beer bong um, in my <laughs> early 20s at one of the bars. I can't remember which one. So that's uh, full disclosure there. Um, There's always <laughs> stories, always a good story. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your first job out of college and how did you get that job? Oh, gosh. So at that time, I had graduated from Emporia State and moved to the East Coast. And it was with corporate fitness works at the time in collaboration in partnership with the local YMCA. And so a very unique role where I was actually employed by the Y, but to work on site at the Tampa Yacht Club. And let me just tell you, early 20s, living on the East Coast, and you find yourself working at a yacht club. I mean, talk about amazing. <laughs> Any celebrity sightings in Tampa Bay? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think just where my interest and my free time tended to be, it was actually more around athletes in the space. So you get your raised baseball players, you get your Bucks football players. Um, and so that was really fun to watch, you know, having it always grown up in the Midwest, in Topeka and kind of Kansas City, to be in a different city and to watch their local athletes engage with the community, to follow athletic events there in town. That was really fun for me. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Tampa Bay is beautiful. That, that, that whole area, Clearwater, St. Pete. It's a great area. So you spent a, the vast majority of your career back in Kansas City at Garmin, you know, one of the biggest employers here in Kansas City. Tell us how you got that job and what was your highlight experiences at Garmin? Yeah, so my last 12 years in the corporate space in-house were spent at Garmin, and it was wonderful. I had an opportunity to build a brand new program for them around corporate wellness from the ground up and really watch it evolve and watch 
how employees resonated with the information, but then to also see the translation in language over 12 years about what well-being became and how it stretched from a business perspective to think beyond physical well-being. You know, I think that it's very clear to say we are beyond when we discuss corporate or workplace well-being, that it's beyond just the physical aspect. But, you know, when you go back 2011, 2012, from a wearable perspective, some of the early onset devices that weren't specifically tailored and targeted toward marathon runners and triathletes, they were just becoming a thing. And so to evolve that simultaneously with this idea of what does meditation in the workplace look like? How do we talk about mental health and resiliency? I think part of what I honor and am so proud of was launching initiatives like that. So we we piloted our first mindfulness and meditation programs in 2013, when not a lot of companies may have been comfortable in that space or may not have known what does that strategy look like? It was 2016 when I curated an in-house resiliency program and really took it upon myself to understand, okay, I see this growing trend. We need to address mental, emotional, behavioral health in the workplace, but I've got to meet this population where they are. And so hosting some focus groups to learn from them, what language does resonate? What do you want to address? And then that became a resiliency program that we offer year over year, if nothing else, as a resource and a tool that employees and leaders, managers at any level, could go to for conversations, for a resource system to be able to support the employees. And of course, that barely touches the iceberg of everything that we were able to accomplish over 12 years, but definitely a few highlights that I'm certainly proud of. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Um, my uh, podcast mentor is Tim Ferriss. He has a little bit more popular podcast than, than mine, but I listened to his podcast early on and still do. And once I learned that 80% of the guests on that podcast meditated, I was very interested. I had experimented when I was in my early 30s, um, uh, there's a famous book, and I'm, I may not get the author, John Kubat Zinn, I think, What uh, mm-hmm. wherever yep. you are, there you are, something like that. I read that book, but I just didn't get into it. But yeah, I've been uh, meditating a long time. But so how, that in 2013, that, that is really on the leading as like, what made you get into yeah. like a mindfulness program? Yeah, so it's interesting because of the timing of it, but it was also this shift in how do we no longer just host stress management programs? How do we go beyond learning how or acknowledging stress management? We all have stress in our life and we're going to have stress in our life. You know, we can't avoid it, we can't predict it. And so this was an approach to, and that would have been close to the time when as a program, I intentionally started changing the language from wellness to well-being to emphasize whole person, uh, you know, this holistic, this organic opportunity for individuals in the workplace to evaluate, what does it mean for me? What do I need? We don't all need the same well-being influence. And so having this opportunity to launch mindfulness and meditation was a different spin on that. It was, do you need to create more space in your life? And that could be mental space, physical space, boundary space, you know, you can take whatever intentionality you need behind it to make it your own. And then you pair in this idea of let's sample some meditation. We can teach mindfulness techniques. We can teach through mindful tools, but let's sample meditation. Let's see how it goes. And it was amazing, even to me, to see that the content was resonating. Individuals wanted to practice And then a huge positive that came out of it that I don't even think was on the radar when we initially launched was that we also could see how this was embraced in the culture. It became a, let's take time out for this. I'm going to give myself permission for five minute quiet break. And I would even say, you know, Jeff, 
talking about mindfulness and meditation became very umbrella so that individuals could decide maybe meditation isn't for me, but guess what? I learned all of these great breathing exercises, or I learned to go for a meditative walk, which, you know, we're never, you're not walking with your eyes closed. You're not walking in the dark necessarily. And so it just created a, a springboard for how we could do that. And then that translated down the road to hosting on-site meditation sessions in a group setting. It became on-site meditation rooms. It really evolved into what, again, they needed. It wasn't just throwing something at the wall to see what stuck and what worked. It was hearing from the population. We love this. It's helping us. We appreciate this. We value it. And then I would add, it also created a springboard for mid-level managers and supervisors to address it or bring it up on team meetings. So I would frequently be asked, hey, can you come to our next team meeting or town hall and just talk for 10 minutes on the benefits of this? And it wasn't ever an intention of everyone needs to start meditating. It was, here are the benefits. And if meditation isn't for you, what other practice can help you with stress, can alleviate overwhelm? And, and so that, again, I think was the foundation in 2013 to be able to curate the resiliency program in 2016 that was welcome. And it wasn't, we're not ready for that. We don't want to talk about this. And so I think that I hope for others and anyone listening today that's, you know, I don't know where to start or I don't know what's going to work. Some of it's trial and error. But if you come up with an intentional strategy to build on over time, then none of it just seems random. It is there with intention and purpose and helps the employees in that space. It's amazing. I, I study companies. I know a lot of companies. I, I just never heard of any company having that, uh, you know, I, and obviously there's, you know, there's 25 million, 30 million companies probably in the U.S. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. You know, usually it gets embraced by employees if the executives practice it in public and talk about it. Was that the case with Garmin? So I will say in our case, that was something that was a little bit more from the groundswell. It was hearing employees looking for something new, something different. Again, like I'd said earlier, they didn't want to just sit through a six, eight week long stress management program. And so what we did is you can slap lipstick on a pig, but it was the same approach to the, the same topics over time, but now it was giving them different tools, different resources. So I will say it was a little bit different in terms of it wasn't necessarily the top of leadership saying, we're already doing these things. But what I will say is it was leaders significantly recognizing employee current of loving the content, valuing that the workplace was offering it. And so that in turn, is what had those managers, like I shared, reaching out, like we we as a manager even want to learn a little bit more ourselves. So do you mind coming? And you're going to talk to the employees, like we're educating them and sharing great information and resources. But those managers were learning alongside all of the associates as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, well, I don't know about 2013, but today there's a lot of apps, you know, you have Headspace, Breathe, Calm. Mm -hmm. I use Insight Timer myself. Were you using any type of app for the employees? At that time, we were not. We strictly had it as an in-house program. And so we, through our on-site group guided meditations that we were offering, we were also recording our own to keep on the intranet. So making it easily accessible to them. But yeah, to your point, you know, 2013, we weren't leveraging a ton. Now, I will add in the unique scenario of it being Garmin, they could track metrics through Garmin devices and their Garmin app, right? So again, it's still trying to cultivate this entire holistic environment and ecosystem where we weren't needing to invest in Calm app or a Headspace app at that time, but there were in-house internal resources that they could pair a lot of the information with. So I'm interested in the resiliency program. I think you said you implemented in 2016. Mm -hmm. So can you uh, expand on that? And what exactly is a resiliency program? Because that's a new concept for me. 
Yeah, we had the opportunity. I had kind of mentioned, you know, I did some focus groups. I had all this content, but the opportunity was let's address mental health and do it in a meaningful way that meets our associates where they are. So that particular program was referred to as Adventures in Resilience. And one thing that we know, and I had learned at that time about the population to meet them where they are, this comic book theme around resilience resonated. And while it seems cheeky that it is a group of professionals, predominantly male, so many engineers make up this environment, that's what was meaningful to them. It made what can be heavy conversations and hard topics to discuss, especially in the workplace at times, it made it applicable to everyone. And it made it this comfortable space of maybe that's another request that I received from a manager on, can you come to the next team meeting and talk specifically about one of the handouts that were part of that program? It could have been on how sleep impacts our mental health. But we also dove into suicidality and watching signs and symptoms. We dove into addressing anxiety and depression and stress and overwhelm. What does that look like? How do we support one another? And kept it in a very appropriate environment. In fact, the program, when it launched the first year, it was something that I was certainly so proud of. And we had so many associates willing to share very personal stories that it was picked up and highlighted by the American Psychological Association through a case study that was written. And so I think that that just shows the power of having a workplace that can be vulnerable enough to discuss these things, these topics, these struggles, these realities that, again, the whole person is dealing with, whether it is personal, professional, home, work, community. And so leveraging Adventures and Resilience as that platform became something that we could continue year after year to update statistics, update some of the discussion points, update what was meaningful and resonated with our associates because you could embrace this was an internal program and it was something to be really passionate about. Yeah, that, it, that's just fantastic. I, I, I really have a new appreciation for Garmin. Um, my first fitness watch was a Garmin, so there you go. Not, 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 counting, not, not counting the Timex Ironmans I wore. I, I just count that as a watch. Uh, but anyhow, so tell me, it seems like Garmin would have been fairly well prepared uh, just from an emotional, mental state for COVID, but... Tell us that experience in what you were doing mm. in the well-being space and uh, you know what challenges you had during COVID. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's always hard, Jeff, in a conversation like this to say, here are the great things, right? But, but from a positive psychology perspective, from a resiliency perspective, we do need to find some of those silver lining opportunities. And the pandemic certainly, like everyone, it, it certainly caught us off guard. We, to your point, we did have a great foundation of what well-being was, but it also was a significant indicator as to the whole that also existed around where we could do more. Like many workplaces, that was not a unique experience just to us. But it was finding those holes and going at a strategy that was meaningful to our employees and meaningful to the communities they serve and the families they were a part of during a global pandemic. You know, a prime example that I share with so many was how we were able to, like others, leverage technology. And so really embed meaningful learning and development, leadership development, you know, merging personal and professional development through these virtual classes, these virtual trainings. And I think it even caught me by surprise being a global organization, but specifically expanding some of that virtual learning space within the U.S., I had an opportunity to talk to our associates all across 
the U.S., that it just the time and space and frequency as a one woman show leading this program pre-pandemic, it was hard to prioritize in the same fashion. And now I could have these employees on a call discussing resiliency, discussing mental health, you know, talking about the blue zones and how do we focus on our own longevity so that we aren't always just focusing on emotional, mental, behavioral health aspects continuing to train on styles of mindfulness strategies and techniques, you know, addressing how do we live a thriving life and how can we have some action items around what does this mean? Creating a consistent platform to discuss flourishing. And again, from positive psychology research, embed this idea of when individuals flourish, the workplace can flourish. So I think there were a lot of lessons learned. It was certainly challenging to consistently across the board be able to meet the needs of everyone in a unique fashion. But I would also add it was things that were on our radar, or I'm sorry, things that weren't on the radar that were a huge success. It was launching the kindness campaign through Dr. Michelle Robin and Small Changes, Big Shifts. And afterward, hearing things from our associates, like, I thought I was kind, but I didn't know how much I needed to hear these things. I didn't know how much permission I needed to be given on, it's okay to come to work and be kind. It kind of, like we started earlier, it brings back the human-centered approach to our workplaces. And that was what humans needed in a global pandemic. So not discrediting things that we don't have to have these grandiose programs and plans and huge investments all the time, but we've got to have a strategy that's meaningful for what our population needs. Yes. Uh, Dr. Michelle Robbins is a gift to uh, Kansas City. Uh, she's uh, phenomenal. Bless her. Yes. yes. Uh, she was one of my first interviews, actually. So she's great. Really, I just applaud everything you did at Garmin. I, I noticed you were top 100 wellness professional in 2014. Then you got another award, top 50 wellness professional in uh, 2016. So you're having this great career at Garmin, but then after 12 years, which, which accumulated in December of 2022, you decide to leave and go out on your own. So what was what was the draw to doing that? Was there something calling you differently out to leave Garmin? You know what? I Like so many, I had a lot of internal reflection over the pandemic. I loved what I do. If nothing else, I hope that my passion for workplace well-being comes across as significantly to others as I feel it internally. And, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, I get asked all the time, like, why would you leave? And, oh my gosh, what was going on in your mind? Lots of things is what I will say first and foremost, but being a self-aware individual and tapping into my own emotional intelligence to recognize I've done a lot. I've provided a lot, we have grown a lot, and it, it wasn't anything necessarily ever on my radar, even before the pandemic. Yet I had this yearning passion that just continued to bubble up on, I'm so passionate about this, and I had done such tremendous work while at Garmin and had great support, but how could I do it for others? How can I expand that and have it repeatable and have other employees feel that same passion from their employer. Have other communities that have employers supporting these same topics and initiatives that are meaningful for their workplace. And so as, as that continued to bubble up and I continued to cultivate it and really lean into it, again, it's that desire to help so many more workplaces in similar fashions. And it was such a great experience to Garmin, and I'm so grateful for the time I had there, their investment in me. And now Kansas City is a small enough community. It's seen those employees in the community, and it's still great camaraderie. It's seen my own leadership team, you know, over and over again at other events where we do support one another and we do continue to embrace and create these thriving communities. And so that's really what led me in this direction to help others. And then I think a different 
approach to the mindset that I certainly want to call out was me recognizing it was a time and a space where I could give to others. And I say that because I was allowing others to come in and take over that program. It didn't need to be the Haley Prophet show any longer. It didn't need to be only the vision I had. And so sometimes things change over time and visions become different and there's different pursuits that you may have as goals. And I wanted to really lean into some of those visions and goals and continue to go out there and inspire and empower others so that individuals can thrive, workplaces can thrive, communities can thrive. Yeah, I, I just think it's fantastic. Another guest on the podcast has said, you know, people really have the calling or they know what to do. It's the having the courage to do it. Mm. And, you know, and so I applaud you in terms of you, you actually did it. So uh, what what was your biggest surprise? Uh, you know, you're at a big company, Garmin, a lot of resources, you know, steady paycheck, good, great benefits, uh, probably heavily discounted on all fitness equipment, watches <laughs> and all that. So what was your biggest surprise going out on your own uh, eight, nine months ago? Oh, gosh. Well, it's hard to list one. Repeat, there's there's so many surprises and there's so many learning experiences along the way, but one that is top of mind right now, because I just shared it with someone yesterday was copywriters. Oh my gosh, we have to give so much credit to copywriters. I am obviously, I'm wearing the hat of being CEO, CFO, CMO, COO, but recognizing I was so blessed to have such a great team behind me supporting all of these creative initiatives that I came up with because I love that strategy space, but then they could help me with the linguistics. They could help me curate copy content. And so having that marketing person in my back pocket, man, I miss that. I miss that. You know, it's easy to say, it's easy to not have to list things like relationships and people, I still am blessed to be able to interact with them. I still run into them all the time. I still keep in touch. So that is something I'm very lucky to have. But yeah, to your point, it's having those teams around you to support it. And so I instead have really embraced that is a significant opportunity for me to stretch myself in this capacity. How can I tap deeper into my values and my strengths and my own strategies that I didn't even know I had? So challenging myself with some of those has been great too. So I think part of what you're doing, I mean, obviously you wanted to bring this to more people, more companies, and I love that idea. But you talk about being a fractional well-being officer. And uh, so a lot of listeners don't understand the fractional concept. So give your definition of that as well as what do you do as a fractional well-being officer for your clients? So the beautiful part of being able to serve and offer services in a fractional capacity is the reality that, especially if you are a smaller or mid-sized business, you don't need the overhead. You don't need the full-time in-house on-staff resource, yet loving the strategy, seeing how meaningful it can be for a workplace. My role as a fractional well-being expert in the workplace is to come in, work with leaders to assess what is our current reality today? Where are we when it comes to a culture of well being? What is it that we want to leverage well being for, whether that be retention and recruitment, productivity and performance, relationship building, manager awareness and acknowledgement, and then creating that strategy to support them? And I think it's important to also call out the uniqueness of fractional work allows you to stretch and be as flexible as the client needs. So they may only need me a couple of hours a week at most, whereas you may have some that almost want you on a once a week basis. And so being fluid enough to meet their needs, see that long-term vision and empower them to be able to create a sustainable culture of well-being on their own long-term. Yeah, that is so interesting. I, I love the fractional concept. I think it just makes a lot of sense. And most small companies, growth companies, 
because they can't afford it, wait, you know, way too long to hire somebody full time. Absolutely. Uh, so what's the most common company or workplace misconception about well-being, Haley? Well, I think I'd mentioned earlier, you know, we're beyond assuming that well-being is a physical realm only. Uh, in fact, there was a great LinkedIn article a few days ago that was, you can't meditate your way out of a toxic culture. You can't provide enough fruit bowls to make someone lose weight. While there is time and space and place for a lot of those types of perks and programs to be a part of the strategy, a misconception that I still hear when it comes to workplace well-being, believe it or not, is that well-being shouldn't be on the shoulders of the employer. Well-being should single-handedly be up to the individual. Therefore, placing this expectation that we're reducing our benefit expenditure on our medical plan and that you should, as an individual employee, be taking care of yourself when it actually works completely the opposite. I mean, we know that neglecting well-being is so impactful for the workplace that not only are they losing money and productivity, it's the burnout, it's the retention and the turnover. And so this misconception that it isn't a shared responsibility and that, that Jeff could be an entire hour long discussion. And quite frankly, I have it with many leaders that are on the fence about how much am I willing to invest and put into well-being strategy for my business? When in fact, I tell them, how can you afford not to? How can you afford to continue to replace these roles that we see turning over? How can you continue not to get at the heart of what may appear on the outside to be physically unwell individuals? And how can you not support that of them? We know through plenty of data that there are opportunities. And when you prioritize well-being and when leaders believe it is a business imperative, not only are their people healthier, but the statistics show how much more profitable the business is, how much higher producing and performing the individuals are. So it's getting out of this space of whose responsibility is it? It's a shared responsibility. And how do we create and curate these environments and cultures and ethos that genuinely understand and value that imperative? I totally agree, Haley. Yeah, I think I know you're, you know, eight, nine months in, but have you seen any differences in gender in terms of your clients, the, the ones that are more receptive to what you offer? Interesting question. My perception is that I am not seeing the difference. However, what I may notice to be a difference is how comfortable they are addressing it. You know, a prime example is a meeting with a client uh, a few months back, and it was predominantly male in the room. And it was, we had to build a foundation of trust in that space during that session, during that topic discussion, so that they could be really vulnerable to say, look, I don't even know how to address this. Hey, look, I've got this scenario and I'm not sure how to approach it. Hey, look, I'm in, I'm in this environment with this within my team but instead I'm kind of avoiding it. What do I do? And so I will say that there's some differences there, but if you truly get in a trusted environment and a space that values the conversation and are willing to adjust prior practices, prior techniques, prior mindset of why these conversations are important, then again, it equals the playing field completely. And, and that's part of that's human nature, right? I mean, physiologically, our brains work differently between men and women. Our body is made up differently. Our psyche is made, everything, all the way down to chemistry. So we know that there's going to be a difference to some extent, but I, I will see, I've been pleasantly surprised. At least all conversations are open to everyone. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. I didn't know what you were going to say in terms of the answer to that question, but I would just, <laughs> to me, what like- What would your answer be? Well, I would just, my guess, and I think females are more evolved than males. <laughs> I just think, <laughs> and I just think they have, they would be more receptive to it and understand the importance of versus a male and uh, me being a male and, you know, bad mouthing my own gender here. But um, yeah, I just- Well, and I- and I certainly don't want to get a so on a soapbox about 
women empowerment and women leadership, we still see there are significant differences in the makeup of senior leadership levels between male and female in the workplace. We still see it. We still know that that's going on. But to address your point, there are plenty of workplaces I've been in where it may be a single one or two females at the top of that leadership group that feel they have to fit in the box of a male-dominated leadership team. So in that case, they may not be the most emotional there. There are times in that setting, you know, a half dozen leaders, and I've got a male sticking around. And again, not to stereotype in the scenario, but maybe he wasn't comfortable even addressing some of these questions around supporting his team's mental, emotional health. And that's fine. It For me as a practitioner in this space, it's more about the work we're doing, the conversations we're having, and the impact we're making. I don't care the color of your skin or the makeup of your gender. If you are willing to have this conversation, let's do it. Let's rock it. Let's be impactful. No, I totally agree. A lot of my female guests that I've had, we've talked about like, so if a male executive cries, everybody applauds it, uh, you know, you know, showing his emotions and all that. But if a female cries executive, they're weak, right? I mean, so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a double standard that's unfortunate, right? But probably have mentioned some of this, but you know, when you look at the best company cultures out there, in this well-being space, what are they focusing on right now? And what do you see as kind of the next trend? It's probably not a surprise. I do continue to see a growing trend of places addressing this whole person mentality. And not that workplaces haven't been, but I will say the shift I'm seeing now is it's going beyond perhaps just the in-house wellness or well-being program being a whole person focus into truly leadership, development opportunities, your C-suite, understand and value whole person. That whole person is coming. This is not taking a shoebox off the shelf in the morning and putting on your work shoes and leaving everything at home and coming home at 5.05 and putting that work shoebox up and putting on the personal shoe. We know this. We're beyond that. And so workplaces that don't still need to be in the weeds of having the conversation and what does that mean? Let's just get into it. Let's address these things and making leaders comfortable in how to do that, how to embrace it, and how to practice boundaries around it. So so that's one that will continue to go on, I believe, for quite a while. And then the next one that I'm definitely seeing as a growing trend, which isn't a surprise, is beginning to recognize and acknowledge that well-being does impact engagement. And specifically, how do we begin to tap into recognition in the workplace of individuals' performance, of their emotional intelligence, this idea of merging the two. In fact, there's a a recent article and publication that has come out from Gallup in partnership with the Work Human Group, focusing on just that. When we see individuals who have a high sense of well-being and feel that they are being recognized in the workplace. And it doesn't even mean monetarily. This is simply my supervisor, manager, boss recognizes and values the impact I'm making and my performance. It is through the roof how these individuals continue to be retained, continue to perform. And conversely, those that may be struggling with their well being and or not feeling recognized by their leader. Maybe they're not having regular one-on-ones. There isn't this 360 loop other than a once a year performance evaluation. That is where you see the spike in turnover. That's where it's harder to retain your top talent if they're in that space. So how do you creatively bring engagement, employee experience, and well-being to the forefront and empower these managers to want to do so as well? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree with that. Um, Haley, there's two groups of people I like to help with uh, leadership advice and and career advice. Uh, the first group is a you know, recent college graduate. They're going out for their first professional job. What advice would you give them as they embark on their career journey? I am going to steal one from Diana Kander, and it's how do you personalize it? It may take a little bit of time. It doesn't have to take a ton of time, but if they are going into 
an interview, maybe it's even a Zoom interview, how do you personalize your approach and interaction so that it is no longer, you're just going on these interviews and answering the questions, but you know, not just about the business, but you know about the people interviewing you so that you can begin to create that relationship before you're even offered the job. I mean, we see relational well-being on a huge spike right now and addressing it in the workplace on a spike. So I would say for new folks kind of in that phase, take the time, invest in the research. You know, we hear all the time, look up the company, have great questions to ask, but I'd take it a step further, make it personal and individualized so that when you're there, that's what's going to stand out. When that recruiter or that interviewer leaves and is taking notes on your interaction, it's oh, wow, they met me where I am as an individual. We had personal connection. And so think outside the box, challenge yourself, spend the time in that space. I love that. That's that's great advice. And that's uh, fairly, uh, I, I'm not sure we have heard that answer before. So thank you for that one. The second group is, okay, now you've worked a little bit at Garmin or whatever company and spent the first few years as an individual contributor. Now you become a manager. So you have people under you. Now you're responsible mm. for someone. What advice would you have for them as they embark on their uh, leadership journey? Oh my gosh, this is an easy one. First and foremost, self-care. What are they doing? When you, I see it all the time, you are that first-time manager, first-time team lead. Maybe you feel completely equipped with what you need to do in a tactical manner, but you're so consumed by how you're performing, how the team's performing, achieving the goals, pushing the product, making the sale, but don't forget that that team is watching how you're acting, watching how you're reacting. So I would say first and foremost, self-care. They've got to prioritize and live out and practice their self-care and then share with the team why they're doing it, how they're doing it, what this looks like. That is a skill as a manager you can teach and embrace and empower your team to do more than so many other. So put your airbag on first, just like they tell you before the flight takes off. So absolutely. Haley, you're you're tremendous. I, I we can go on forever and talk about this. We'll have to have a second session here uh, uh, on the corporate couch. But uh, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I think you're going to do some really great things for uh, companies. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time, the opportunity, and excited we had the conversation. Oh, I so enjoyed my conversation with Haley. As you know, Joe, uh, health, wellness, fitness is all in my sweet spot and, you know, how uh, I go about my daily life. And we can talk about your approach to that uh, shortly. <laughs> but she goes beyond the wellness movement and talks about well-being, you know, which is the whole person availability. And, and she was on the leading edge. I mean, implementing meditation practices at mm -hmm. a big company. Garmin. And it has been for some time for yeah, it's incredible. years or so. I mean, she's all about eight months in her own company, this fractional chief wellness officer. And I think it's such a, a great concept and it really can help a lot of companies. So I'm very excited to see where she takes it and how many companies uh, she's going to help. What did you think about the conversation, Joe? Well, you're right. This isn't exactly my area of expertise at all, but uh, but that's fine because she's obviously was an incredible guest and an incredible interview. I loved listening to her. The one thing that I was very interested in is the fact that when she was talking about meditation, and meditation is not my thing. I'm just so chilled. I just don't know that I need a lot of meditating in my life. But one of the things that I do do a lot of is that I take a lot of breaks. And sometimes they're health breaks and sometimes they're mental health breaks. But when I'm working, and that's one of the reasons why I work best alone, is uh, I'll get up sometimes just and just walk around the house and then come back and sit down. But another thing that I'll do a lot of is I'll lay flat on my back. I obviously have back issues. Lay flat on my back, stare at the ceiling for just three to five minutes, sometimes on the floor behind my chair, and sometimes I'll go back in the bedroom and lay down. But that three to five minutes is what I need every once in a while to kind of 
rejuvenate myself. And one of the points that she made was when she was talking about meditation is even if meditation itself isn't a thing for you, then you need to be finding the thing that is the thing for you. And that's kind of what I had done. So I think what I do, even though I wouldn't count it as meditation, I think what the thing that I do counts off the the checkbox in her mind as meditation. And I think that's a, that's a very open way of looking at things. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I, I Well, and I think, you know, you were doing two things, really. I mean, obviously, it was the physical part of you know, your back, but you were getting three to five minutes of really stillness and quieting your mm-hmm. mind. Cause I do meditate every day, mm-hmm. but I, I, and so you, without knowing it, we're probably, you were meditating. We're doing and, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's just a, a, a few minutes of pushing the clutch in, if you will, and letting things kind of idle for a little bit. And then you come back around. It's not a total reboot, but it's a little time to kind of uh, regrasp reality. Okay, so you and I would have done that anyway, probably. The neat thing is that she is embedding that into the corp- culture of corporations and uh, apparently having some pretty good success with it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I, it's it's going to be very uh, cool to see where she goes. So based on Haley's conversation, what leadership advice, Joe, would you impart on our uh, great listeners? Today, we are going to go to that great philosopher, Stephen Wright, who one time said, if Barbie is so popular, why do you have to buy her friends? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.